Hello and welcome to Conventions, a podcast about the history of constitutions brought to you by the Quill Project at Pembroke College, Oxford. My name's Grace Mallon and I'm your host. Co-hosting today's episode is Dr Nicholas Cole, the director of the Quill Project. Hi Nicholas. Hello Grace. Our guest is Robinson Woodward Burns, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Howard University. He's joining us today to talk about his new book, Hidden Laws, How State Constitutions Stabilize American Politics, which is out this year with Yale University Press. Robinson, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. I um, obviously haven't had a chance to get my hands on the book itself yet, but I have had the opportunity to read the manuscript, um, which obviously overlaps a lot with my own interests in federalism, which leads me to my first question. Um, I'm always interested in the generation of, uh, of these projects, particularly when they sort of overlap with my own interest in state government and federalism. So how did you get interested in state constitution making? Um, and how did this project come to be? That's a great question. State constitutions uh, are pretty esoteric. The United States has these 50 states, each of which has its own constitution, but there's not too much academic attention that's been paid to them. And so I actually began by studying a particular constitution. It's one I'm sure you know, Grace, the Pennsylvania Constitution of 1776. And it was, for its own time, a radical document. It did things that other documents in its time did not do. It was a unicameralist document. It uh, provided for a one-chambered legislature because uh, that was thought at the time to be more democratic. It uh, had a very wide franchise, well, the widest in the Western world, according to the historian uh, Gary Nash, at the time at least. Uh, And it also had a a sort of idiosyncratic provision, an odd one, in an early draft uh, which held, quote, an enormous proportion of of property vested in a few individuals is dangerous to the rights and destructive to the common happiness of mankind. And so this sort of odd provision, and it eventually gets cut, uh, provided for uh, mandatory property redistribution and potentially even land redistribution. So it was also an economically radical document. uh, And that's sort of what got me interested in American constitution making at the state level. It was a very influential document. Uh, It led to the genesis of the um, Vermont and uh, Georgia constitutions, and ultimately backlash against the document shaped the United States Constitution, which was a much more conservative document. And so it was seeing that interaction between state and federal constitution making between state and national constitutionalism that uh, inspired the project uh, in a larger sense. That's really interesting to hear. I think the Pennsylvania Constitution is the gateway drug for a lot of people who end up being interested um, in state government, in state constitution making, because it is this sort of extraordinary, um, this extraordinary document. And that economic radicalism is so striking for the period. Um, That said... Although, I mean, one of the things that got me interested in in the United States um, as a as a sort of area of study um, is federalism, American federalism being this sort of peculiar um, system, this peculiarly old federal system. Um, at the same time, what I find certainly working on federalism, working on state government, is there's still an overwhelmingly national focus in a lot of scholarship and also in the media. And I was wondering if if you, Robinson, and perhaps also Nicholas could comment on, on why that is. 
Uh, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, it's the case that most uh, study of public law in the United States focuses on the national constitution. And there are a few reasons for that. Uh, one is that the constitution, the federal constitution, is relatively short. It's only 7,800 words, and it's a lot easier as such to study. Uh, the state constitutions have much lower bars to amendment and replacement, and as such, we've had many more, many more state constitutions. Uh, we've uh, had uh, 411 attempts to write new state constitutions, which has produced uh, 144 documents that have been ratified, and these are much longer documents. The constitution of the state of Alabama, for example, is uh, 389,000 words long. And so that, that's something of a deterrent to scholars. It's difficult, I think, to get into these constitutions uh, with their thousands of amendments. Uh, and because of that, there's been a focus on federal uh, constitutionalism, national constitutionalism. Uh, I think, though, there's uh, sort of a, a sacrifice that comes with that in that uh, it requires one to ignore most constitutional change in the United States. So over 99% of amendments ratified in the United States have been to the state constitutions. There have been only 27 federal amendments ratified, as opposed to the 11,000 amendments uh, proposed at the state level. Uh, and 95% of uh, litigation in the United States is filed in the state courts rather than the federal courts. And so by ignoring state constitutionalism, really we're ignoring most uh, constitutional change in America and studying instead this pretty small and unrepresentative slice of constitutionalism and I think in some troubling ways taking that very small slice to represent the whole in ways that misrepresents American constitutional change and American constitutional history more generally. I think all of that's of course completely right. Uh, the, the other thing of course is that the the national reporting of politics in America most naturally reports the workings of the federal government. And likewise, you know, historical writing that is of national appeal often focuses as well on the national government. So if, you, if you're looking for reasons why state constitutions are often neglected, um, that those are part of the reason. I, I think another thing as well is that, particularly because of the Civil War, the, the, the late 19th century historical trends that, that still in many ways influence the way history is, is studied today, focused on the, the, the business of constitution writing in the founding moment and, and, and bringing together parts of the nation that really disagreed with each other. Uh, and there was a huge effort at the end of the 19th century to publish and re-edit the records of federal constitution writing. And in that narrative, state constitutions seemed much less interesting, much less important. Um, the, the element of government that was perhaps failing in 1787 and which needed a sort of national politics to, to rescue it. And, and by contrast, you know, the, the same amount of, of money and attention has not been given to and, and paid to uh, editing state-level uh, records and publishing them. And of course, they are bound to be of um, of more local rather than more national interest. But that leaves everybody with the sense that constitutions all have the sort of qualities of the federal system. And that the, the sort of really important things that people wanted to work out were how many people would be in a in a Senate or how would the how would the sort of schedule of elections between a lower and an upper house relate to each other? 
And so they miss the fact that actually the state-level conversations are about a much wider range of topics than trying to navigate the, the, the problem of divided sovereignty, which is at the heart of the, the federal system. Uh, and, and I think people are often surprised when they when they turn to state constitutions just to see how rich the range of topics uh, that's covered in, di- in different state constitutions is. I'm always interested in this myself because uh, my, my own project was sort of inspired by the fact that the states seem to fall out of the historiography at exactly the moment that the federal constitution is created. Um, and I think, you know, because, because historians perhaps quite naturally are just mostly interested in figuring out, well, how did you get this group of um, very disparate in some ways, polities, regions, peoples to come together as a nation? Um, And so I suppose in that sense, it's quite natural, but it's interesting um, to think about these things Um, and to sort of get back to the argument of the book itself, Hidden Laws. Um, what, What the book essentially does is, well, one of the things that the book does is it explains why the federal constitution has managed to have only 27 amendments, why it still looks very, very similar um, in terms of its text um, to what was produced uh, in, in the 1780s um, by, uh, by the framers. Um, and so what I wanted to ask you, Robinson, is, is how has the nation, I mean, what, what is the role of state constitutions in allowing the nation to change so much while the constitution on its face seems to have changed so little? Well, thank you for that question, Grace. Uh, it's an important one. The United States Constitution, as I mentioned, has been amended only 27 times, and that's a remarkably low number. In a comparative context, we see that other national constitutions tend to be amended at a much higher rate. Uh, and similarly, the Supreme Court only rarely fundamentally reinterprets the meaning of the United States Constitution. So the question then might be, how has the United States Constitution remained in its fundamentals untouched, or in some very fundamental ways untouched, since it was framed in 1787. And I think there are maybe two main answers, neither of which I think is right, and that's sort of why I wrote the book, was to try to tackle these two stories. And and so one would say the United States Constitution is just very difficult to amend. It sets the highest bar to amendment of any national constitution, according to a database built by the scholars Elkins, Melton, and Ginsburg. And they point out that this three quarters of states required to ratify an amendment is is so high that it seems unlikely that the amendments would uh, be ratified and that might explain the longevity of the constitution and the dearth of amendments. But one thing that they also point out is that constitutions that are hard to amend tend to be brittle. They break instead of bending. And in fact, these really hard to amend constitutions have shorter lifespans. And so if anything, the US Constitution shouldn't have made it past the founding generation. And so we still have this puzzle of how the Constitution survived. Other people would point out that uh, the federal courts in the United States, the national court system has reinterpreted the Constitution to update it, uh, to bring it into the contemporary era. But the issue there is that the federal courts tend to be fairly conservative in a small C sense, 
federal judges are appointed by Congress. Uh, they're nominated by the president, confirmed by Congress, and so they tend to uphold the values of the people who brought them into office. That is to say, they slow pedal change. So we see very little uh, significant change coming through the federal courts relative to uh, other court systems at the national level. So I, I think the, the explanation is instead what I call conflict decentralization. And through conflict decentralization, we see the state constitutions doing the heavy lifting in terms of addressing national political controversies. The U.S. Constitution, because it's very brief, allows the states to work out many issues that the federal government also can intervene in. And so you get this parallel system in which the federal government, though it can intervene in many areas because of these high bars to change, rarely does, whereas the states, with their much lower bars to amendment and their much lower bars to wholesale constitutional replacement, are constantly undergoing change. You get these very long constitutions at the state level, hundreds of thousands of words, that really tackle these national issues which are neglected at the national level. Uh, conflicts at the national level tend to get decentralized to the states, and I think that's been uh, a way that the American constitutional system has been able to grapple with needed change. It's a slow and it's a very inefficient system, but the benefit of it, I think, is longevity, that it's a very stable system. I think that point about concurrence, about the fact that in in fact, although there's this in these enumerated powers, although there's this sort of idea that the federal and state governments handle different areas of stuff, um, that that there's actually a lot of overlap between what they can uh, can manage is is really interesting, and the fact that the states end up handling. Um, um, what, what you refer to as, as national, fundamentally national issues, um, is absolutely fascinating. So this being a podcast called Conventions, and one of our big interests being the convention as a model, um, I sort of wanted to ask, by what processes do states change their constitutions? Do they have loads and loads of constitutional conventions? Um, or, or are they, they finding other ways um, to change their constitutions, to keep their constitutions flexible so that the national constitution can be relatively inflexible? And, and as Nicholas, so that, that's my first question. And my second question is, as Nicholas mentioned, the state governments, when they're reforming their constitutions, are dealing with a huge number of different policy areas. So could you talk us through like the, the, the different areas of policy that state constitutional change will handle that perhaps we might expect, if we're looking at the federal constitution as a model, to be handled more by, by legislatures rather than constitutional conventions? Certainly. So there's this question of how, how state constitutions change, and then there's the question of what, what's in them. And the how is a uh, fairly broad, there are many ways to change state constitutions. If you're attempting to entirely replace a constitution, to draft uh, an entirely new constitution, there are several paths to do it, and perhaps the best known one, and one uh, on which the, the Quill Project is focused, uh, is the convention. And there's this wealth of, of conventions, there have been 255 uh, constitutional conventions at the state level, all of which produce this uh, great set of records. Um, and that's not the only way to change constitutions. Beyond that, uh, we see a rise in the 20th century in specialized commissions to draft state constitutions. There was, uh, in the progressive era in the United States, in the late 
um, the late 1800s and early 1900s, an effort to have expert uh, drafting of state constitutions. And that uh, continued through the 20th century in which lawyers and academics and legislators and even governors would collaborate to draft new constitutions for the states. Very rarely, you might also see a legislature draft a new constitution for the state, but that's been fairly rare. Uh, very early on, in fact, in the drafting of Pennsylvania's constitution in 1776, uh, there was a large pamphlet literature which established that constitutions were designed to constrain or bind legislators, and therefore those legislators should not be the people left to draft the constitution. So that's been relatively infrequent. In fact, in total, uh, legislatures have drafted constitutions less than a dozen times, and we've only seen a few dozen, a few dozen commissions. So the bulk of wholesale change has been through the constitutional convention process. But even that has actually started to uh, sort of gradually uh, subside in the end of the uh, 20th century, and we've seen a rise instead of constitutional change through amendment. States can pass amendments that are sponsored by the legislatures uh, or by the voters of the state through uh, the initiative or referendum process. And as John Dynan, a scholar of American state constitutionalism, has pointed out in his book, State Constitutional Politics, modern state constitutional change really works through amendment. Uh, and as he points out, there's all kinds of policy that gets embedded in amendments, as well as through wholesale constitutional change. Um, so essentially, if you're asking what can be included in a state constitution, uh, it's, uh, state constitutions have plenary authority. They have the authority, uh, state constitution drafters have the authority to tackle any issue that's not expressly forbidden to them uh, by the federal constitution. And the federal constitution does disallow the states from, say, engaging in the coining of money or framing treaties or establishing their own armed forces. But outside of that, the states have the presumptive authority to engage in policy making, and uh, that can include uh, contentious modern issues like the regulation of abortion or the rights of same-sex couples, the deregulation of marijuana, the control of guns. Uh, so modern, really contentious issues are being worked out constitutionally to some degree through the federal courts, but to a much greater degree through state constitutional reform, and particularly now through state constitutional amendment. I think I'm right that the most recent sort of traditional form of of uh, state constitutional amendment that is a sort of convention and then a then a popular ratification is Rhode Island isn't it in in 1986 and 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 the trend subsequently has been very much um amendments on very specific issues you, you know sometimes I, I think seeming to contradict each other uh you know in, in some places since I, I was wondering what you thought the the trends over the next decade might be and and whether anything had been lost through this shift to this um some new process of of amending constitutions by by simply adding more amendments to the end of them on, on specific policy questions as opposed to having processes to to sort of hammer out new texts in in some some more sort of considered and holistic kind of way that's an excellent question, and you're absolutely right that this decline in constitutional replacement through convention has uh, resulted in the loss of that tradition of deliberative constitution making. One of, one of the uh, real sort of treasures of the American state constitutional tradition are these records in which we can see convention delegates debating how to build 
a consistent, coherent document. And that really has disappeared. Uh, again, as you pointed out, Rhode Island in 1986 was the last state to uh, draft an entirely new constitution. Uh, and there have not since been successful conventions, although uh, just over a dozen states are required to have calls for conventions periodically. Uh, no state has done that. New York state recently rejected an attempt to draft a new constitution by convention. And there's been a little bit of research on this, but what we see is a lot of caution. People are unwilling to throw out the entire document when they can simply change the one part that they seek to change. And so we see the shift now towards uh, revision by amendment, which creates these uh, somewhat uh, conflicting documents, uh, documents that, um, like the Alabama Constitution, are very long, a bit parochial, have many different provisions, which sometimes reflect um, the uh, interests of uh, particular policymaking or lobbying groups. It reflects, I think, a different conception of democracy, not that of the founding era of deliberation and convention, but that of the progressive era in the United States, in which the public could voice its opinion through initiatives or referenda. And that's something of a, a troubling view in that uh, we often see the public passing initiatives or referenda without fully understanding the content of what they're voting for. So I think you're right to point out that we see a decline not only in deliberative democracy that you find in conventions, but also in genuine public participation in the constitution-making process. Uh, I think we've lost something when we lose conventions. I, I wondered as well about asking you about the uh, the question of, of statehood for, for the District of Columbia. Uh, do you think we'll see a, a constitution written for uh, a sort of state of D.C.? And, and what do you think that might look like? Or, or do you think that that question is so hotly contested that it, it's never going to come to anything? That, that's a great question and one very close to my heart. I'm actually from Washington, D.C., and that's where I teach now. Um, I think there are two questions. One, whether the district can draft a constitution and two, whether Congress will actually grant statehood to the district under that constitution. D.C. actually has drafted a constitution. It did so in 2016, and the process was a bit contentious. Uh, the mayor's office, in collaboration with um, uh, some members of the District of Columbia City Council, had a panel of lawyers draft a constitution, which it presented to the public, and then named that public um, uh, se uh, presentation session a convention. As someone who studies conventions, I can tell you that that's not an orthodox convention. Normally, at least you would uh, elect delegates at a minimum. Those delegates would debate and pre uh, present uh, the Constitution for a public uh, vote. While the D.C. Constitution of 2016 was subject to a public vote, it was not drafted by delegates who were popularly elected. And this actually might present an issue should D.C. get statehood, uh, given this is not only an unorthodox process, but might actually violate the U.S. Constitution's Guarantee Clause, which requires, quote, a Republican form of government. Long, uh, for a long time, we've understood that to require electing delegates to a, a special convention. Uh, now, I, I should say I'm actually a proponent of D.C. statehood. I think this is fairly easy to fix by simply having another convention. It's something that Washington, D.C. did successfully in 1982 in a much earlier statehood push. So I think this can be fixed. Uh, even after, uh, should Congress pass the pending statehood bill, I think it would be possible afterwards for the district to hold a proper convention. The real issue here, uh, and this is the issue perennially for states applying uh, for statehood, is how it would change the balance of power in Congress, and particularly the Senate. 
DC would receive one member, uh, uh, would uh, have one member in Congress's lower house, but two members in the smaller upper house, the Senate, uh, which has only 100 total members. Right now it's split evenly 50-50 between the two parties. So adding two seats to the left-leaning District of Columbia would also likely add two seats to the Democratic Party and pad their very narrow majority. This is why Republicans uh, consistently oppose D.C. statehood. Um, and this is historically not unlike the admission of other states. States have been denied admission on partisan reasons. The Republican Senate in the late 19th and early 20th centuries denied statehood to Democratic-leaning New Mexico and Arizona. And that same Republican Senate admitted six states, many of which were underpopulated, to get 12 Republican senators in about a 12-month span in order to pad their own majority substantially. In fact, doing that biased the current Senate towards these rural, western, Republican-leaning states, durably changing how the U.S. Senate works. So I don't think there's anything new in uh, the politics around D.C. statehood. It really all comes down to partisanship. I think should Democrats hold the uh, House of Representatives in 2022 and gain a few Senate seats, they'd probably be able to overcome the barriers they now face to passing D.C. statehood. Uh, but sadly, for the 712,000 um, D.C. residents, uh, it really will sort of uh, come down to what happens uh, in the congressional election in 2022. Uh, for that, you know, we'll, we'll have to see. I, I can't resist asking uh, whether you think a, a constitution written by a panel of lawyers versus an elected convention would look very different or whether this is a sort of cosmetic issue. Uh, I, I seem to remember that the, the original attempt to write a constitution for Massachusetts was rejected uh, on precisely these grounds, that, uh, that, the, 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 that the delegates had not been properly selected. So this is actually an issue that goes all the way back to the, the founding of the republic. But, uh, but, it, but in fact, you know, does it result in something different? Or, or, or is this just, just one of those sort of uh, ple pleasing rituals of, of American statehood? I think it's both. It, it certainly is a pleasing ritual of American statehood. I, I like that phrasing in that it, it's a very long tradition in, in American state constitution drafting. The idea that legislators cannot draft the constitution which will bind them uh, is, is, I think, uh, an inherent part of constitution making. Certainly you don't want um, people to uh, select the rules uh, that will determine uh, their behavior or the rules that are designed to constrain them. Uh, you saw in the drafting of the Pennsylvania Constitution of 1776 this debate, and then Massachusetts uh, in 1778 um, attempting to draft a constitution without properly electing delegates, uh, for which uh, Massachusetts um, in its town meetings rejected that constitution, uh, forcing the drafting of another one two years later. Uh, in terms of uh, substantively whether these constitutions are different, uh, it's kind of hard to say in that drafting constitutions by a panel of lawyers or an expert committee, and that's really what happened uh, in, in the case of DC, it's closer to a constitutional commission. That's only been successfully done a few times. The real model is Florida's 1968 constitution, which was very carefully done. Uh, the difficulty is that DC's constitution of 2016 was written in the summer of 2016 in the lead up to the presidential election of 2016 in the expectation that Hillary Clinton would win the election uh, and have a democratic congress quickly pass the constitution. And so there are some pretty fundamental oversights in this hastily drafted document. Uh, one of which is that uh, 
uh, it would provide for the creation of a new state, Washington, D.C. The sole city in that state would be Washington, such that your address in that new uh, state would be Washington, Washington, D.C. It's a typographical error that could have been avoided had the process not been rushed. Uh, and again, when we talk about the deliberative benefits of having a proper constitutional convention, this is one thing that I think would have probably come out in a real convention. Somebody would have caught that error. Uh, again, as a proponent of DC, I'd be happy to have a state uh, that had a long and somewhat redundant name, uh, given the benefits of statehood, full voting rights, and so on. Uh, but it would be even better to have both uh, statehood and a properly named state, I think. I love this story, and it, it reminds me of the fact that, that, that the neglected bit of the US Constitution being those final final sort of clauses at the end saying, oh, um, we should probably put in a comma here and take this word out. <laughs> um, that's a fun side effect of uh, US Constitution making. Well, thank you so much uh, to Robinson and to Nicholas for joining me on this episode of Conventions, the Quill Project podcast. Thank you for listening to Conventions. I'm Grace Mallon, and I was joined by Nicholas Cole, director of the Quill Project, and Robinson Woodward Burns, assistant professor of political science at Howard University. His book, Hidden Laws, How State Constitutions Stabilize American Politics, is out now with Yale University Press. Next time, we're joined by Kiana McAllister and Erica Croft, researchers at Utah Valley University's Center for Constitutional Studies, to talk about their work in reconstructing the Reconstruction Amendments and about the significance of America's second founding.